Oh my god, I got my first sprawling epic. <laughs> so excited. You make fun of me for it so this much. Is, that's gonna be, and then that's you're like, gonna I'm going to do Michelle That's going to be the intro for like, the second one. Welcome to Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Rachel Stewart. And I'm Larry Womack. Welcome back, Larry. We are oh. now on to the history of Michel Foucault part two. No, no, no. Michel Foucault part two. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. Excellent. Well, where we left off, he was being a messy gay mm. in moving around a lot. And so let's see if old Michelle can finally settle down but there are a lot of uh a lot of kick-ass messy gays as we've learned so let's uh let's finish up and find out the fate of michelle foucault so later that year what year are we in right now uh we are still in 1960 something jesus rachel you give me shit about being too thorough (laughs) we're in 1960 something we should be in the 80s you know, by now at least. Book today. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, I think that's good. I think we're finding a balance and it's it's a little column A and a little column B and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're doing it. Later that year, Foucault took a faculty position in the psychology department at the University of Tunis in Tunisia. His boyfriend, Defer, was transferred there as part of his national service. Harsh. <laughs> They could have sent him to Siberia, where Foucault publishes, you know, Tundra and Punishment at the University of Siberia. I'm also just saying, for an academic, and maybe I'm completely wrong here, he seems to change jobs a lot. Yeah, yeah. He he didn't stay put. Mm-hmm. He didn't stay put. Tenure was not something he was looking at. Mm-hmm. He was too much of a rock star. Mm. In June of 1967, riots broke out throughout Tunisia, protesting the government and their belief that Palestine was unlawfully occupied. Well, thank God we figured that all out now. Ancient history. (laughs) So Foucault was supportive of the movement, although he was critical of their ultra-violent anti-Semitic tactics. Are you listening, Susan Sarandon? (laughs) (laughs) These are good distinctions to draw. Okay, where are we? Okay. Foucault left Tunisia in 1968, and in May of that year, he became the head of the philosophy department at the newly created Centre Experimental de Vicenne. Never seemingly content to sit still, Foucault left his position in Vicenne to become the chair of the History of Systems and Thoughts at the prestigious Collège de France. In 1971, he became... This dude is getting moved around like a pedophile priest. That's going to age real well. Uh Uh-oh. In 1971, he became active in the anti-racist movement, which became known as the Committee for the Defense of the Rights of Immigrants. And surely what cannot be a shock to anyone at this point, Foucault started to experience friction with other members of the group. But he was specifically having problems with those espousing anti-Semitic views. So he has a theme here. Okay. Good for him on the right side of that. Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. I don't know about you. I'm anti-anti-Semitism. Don't know about you. 
Yeah, I'm I'm anti. I, you know, I'm anti anti semitism. I, that doesn't make me anti Palestine either. So you know, it can be no, no, varied. They're, they're they're different, and it it doesn't mean you have to be pro Hamas. No, uh, I don't know. There's 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 a lot of stupid shit floating around this topic these days. Yeah, there really is. So, there's so there's so much shit. It's so awful. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so anti-racism, anti-anti-Semitic. Go Foucault. Over the next decade, Foucault published several groundbreaking books dealing with issues of power, control, knowledge, and societal institutions. In 1969's Archaeology of Knowledge, Foucault pointed out that within society, power is manifested through those who exercise it and that it is constantly objectifying those to whom it's being applied. In other words, since individuals with power are constantly surrounded by it, they are invisible to it, and the individuals who are subjected to the power of the dominant are constantly aware of the power of the dominant. This concept is central to theories that deal with queer identity politics, race, and white privilege. We can see the echoes of this idea in Peggy McIntosh's white privilege metaphor of the invisible knapsack. She stated that, quote, white privilege is like an invisible, weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. Combining these two together... It's like a reverse of the emperor's new clothes. He can't see the backpack of privilege he is carrying, but everyone in a marginalized position can absolutely see it and what it affords him. So this is really interesting because one way that Foucault comes up in current conversation is, oh, this framework has been established in which there's no such thing as truth and it's all Foucault's fault and nothing constructive happens and it's totally misapplied to race and gender and politics in general but if you look at Foucault's actual life at the time he was writing all of these things yeah (laughs) you see that's where he meant to apply it most likely well and I think that's what's so hard and that's why I sort of started off with a little bit of a snarky dig about you know that Foucault's mostly read and graduate study seminars by people who only understand about half of it. I think this is what's hard. Foucault is very prosaic, right? It's not a pop culture read and it's very hard and it's very dense. And I think one of the things that is problematic with right now is we are a soundbite society. So we take something out of context and then say, oh, well, this is what this means. And it's like, if you, if you actually read Foucault, And I don't agree with everything that he espoused, but if we look at the sort of basic framework, it's not that the truth doesn't exist and so therefore nothing matters. That's nihilism. It is that we need to look at why truths were constructed the way they were at the time that they were and who were they benefiting and how do marginalized populations challenge that kind of power structure. And ironically, that framework is super relevant to today's media landscape. But Absolutely, okay. 100%. So in 1975, he published Discipline and Punish. Oh. Now, Larry... Yeah, yeah that's, uh, now Larry, that sounds <laughs> up his alley. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, now, Larry, I, I've got to tell you, I read a lot of stuff in grad school, and I read a good bulk of Foucault's work. 
the introduction to discipline and punish is permanently seared into my memory. He starts out by describing in detail the various ways punishment as a public spectacle was carried out. There is one example where he talks about drawing and quartering someone and how it was much harder than it would seem. He talked about how it took several attempts to kill this one guy via the method and like how they had to essentially mutilate this guy's body to finally achieve it. And he he describes like, and I'm not going to go into details about the other ones, but let's just say Faces of Death and Rotten.com has got nothing on the intro to that book. Oh my gosh. You know, I hope to God none of our listeners remember either of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So besides getting a glance into what got Foucault off, because let's not lie, his history has sadism and torture porn written all over it. The publication also introduced the idea of the panopticon as a means of social surveillance. A panopticon was an architectural design for a prison by Jeremy Bentham. Bentham's design was a circle of cells where their doors all pointed toward the center. In the center of the circle was the guard tower. The height and position of the guard tower meant that the guards could see into any cell at any point, but the prisoners in the cells could not see the guards in the tower at all. This creates a scenario where the prisoner follows the rules because of the constant potential of being watched. Foucault took this idea and used it to describe how we essentially wind up policing ourselves under the constant potential threat that someone could be watching us anytime, anywhere. And this was in 1975 when he wrote this. He would have had like an apoplectic fit if he had lived to see electronic surveillance today. So I need the people who pick their nose at intersections to know that we do see you. (laughs) And keep a Kleenex in your car, okay? Just just put it over your finger. Foucault talked about it 50 years ago. Now, here is where if we were going to pretend if Foucault was in this conversation, Mm -hmm. Foucault would then ask you, why do you think it is taboo to pick your nose in public? Because that is a social construct. Because of germs and hygiene. Is this someone who's going to be shaking hands and touching doorknobs? Okay, but okay, so that's a good point, right? Sure. Sure. Okay. Excellent. Anyway, that's (laughs) Panopticon. Okay. We're watching He comes up with that surveillance yeah and that we police ourselves because think about it like even like speed traps right they're like this area is under radar and you're like i better drive the speed limit just in case i get caught that's a panopticon the next year after a trip to california and a quote life-altering acid trip (laughs) foucault released the history of sexuality volume one (laughs) he mel brooks it (laughs) He really did. Foucault originally planned for there to be seven volumes published on the subject, but only three were published while he was alive, and there is a fourth based upon his notes, I believe. In The History of Sexuality, Foucault argues, amongst other things, that the concept of the homosexual was not created until the 19th century. He does not mean to say that same-sex relationships did not exist before this time, but that the stringent austerity of the church-driven Victorian era and the subsequent concrete division of the public and private and the regulations of matters of the home, like sex, procreation, and marriage, 
created the concept of the homosexual as a deviant member of society. He stated, quote, the 19th century homosexual became a personage, a past, a case history, and a childhood, in addition to being a type of life, a life form, and a morphology, with an indiscreet anatomy and possibly a mysterious physiology. Nothing that went into his total composition was unaffected by his sexuality. It was everywhere present in him, at the root of all of his actions, because it was their insidious and indefinitely active principle, written immodestly on his face and body because it was a secret that always gave itself away. The sodomite had been a temporary aberration. The homosexual was now a species. And the, the crazy thing is that and then homosexuality was not perfected until my birth in 19... Today of 19... <laughs> yeah. 19... Until years ago today. Uh. Hmm. Okay, okay. I see some evidence as we research other episodes that there were concepts that there were some people who were homosexual or assumed like... If you're interested in men, you're not interested in women. Basically, things like that. Yeah. Ironically, (laughs) in the context Uh in which he was working, Mm -hmm. which would be gay liberation at the time, pre-AIDS. Right. It really was being seen as more of an identity. And the identity was a reaction to the oppression Mm -hmm. that became more pronounced in mm-hmm. Victorian. Okay, so I'm seeing it, but I'm seeing some irony here too, because I feel well, like he's I, viewing it. Yeah. But I think he also is just trying to point out to us that when you look at something, it's like when you when you look at a, a, a homosexual and you say, why do you have to put it in our face? This is Foucault's way of being like, you literally created the circumstance that that's the only thing we could put in your face because you're choosing to not see any other part of me. And the reason for that is when he talks about this becoming like when he says, you know, nothing of his total composition was unaffected by his sexuality. He's saying you created the problem that you now are trying to eradicate because most people would have been absolutely fine just living their lives in the way that King James did, which was everybody knew he was gay, right? But you have created this person as the embodiment of sin that can be composed of nothing else. Mm. And what this reminds me of is like when I talk to my students about like my different identities, one of the things I say is, yes, I'm gay, but I promise you that's not the most interesting thing about me. With Foucault, I think this is why he gets a lot of shit. People look at this and say, oh, well, this is ironic. And you're like, he's Mm. literally commenting on it. Mm, that's good shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me finish up here that's and deep. then we'll. That's deep. <laughs> I'm not high, but I feel a little high. <laughs> that, there you go. That, that passage was so deep it made me high. <laughs> Thank God no one ever told him about quantum mechanics. No wonder the guy is spending so much time in let's face it bathhouses by this point because i need to clear my head too right now i can only imagine <laughs> could you imagine this was the inside of his head like constant yeah yeah at some point it's like yeah. i'm gonna need some more uh, tactile distraction oh 
So this shift from the sodomite who has his relationships and commits his sexual acts within the private realm, the Victorian era of astringency made all of these things public and therefore subject to the regulation and judgment by the religious powers that be. He also argues that sexual morality is culturally relative, to which I agree to a certain extent. We can see the different ways sexuality is regulated by cultural norms. But there are some aspects of Foucault's take on sexuality that are a little outré for me, mm-hmm. as the French would say. Because he was so entrenched in the belief that all sexual morality was a cultural construction, he was a proponent for child consent, believing that children under the age of 15, which was the age of consent in France, had the capability to make informed decisions in regards to sexual behavior and that it was social taboos that made it immoral and illegal. So we're just going to say no to Foucault on that one. It's good that we did this episode early because (laughs) something that we're going to hit again and again from like the mid 70s to maybe the early 2000s is an argument about age of consent laws. Mm-hmm. And I mean, absolutely. Even, even sort of before that, the, the perspective was, oh, it's improper as mm-hmm. opposed to, oh, this negatively impacts young people in ways that they cannot foresee or control. Right. Like, yeah, it's really awesome when you're in sixth grade and and your hot teacher's hitting on you or whatever. But later when you're an alcoholic who has a troubled sex life. <laughs> yeah, erectile find, dysfunction. Exactly. Right. You 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 might find that relationship wasn't a great idea. There have been people that have come up that have been like, oh, I want to do an episode on them. But the thing that isn't kick ass about them is that they really, really wanted the age of consent to be like 14. Yeah, and I just, I can't get down with that. I don't know how much of our understanding of those issues is recent versus longstanding. I just don't know. I'm not a developmental psychologist, which is a shock to most of you, I know. (laughs) You're not a philosopher or a developmental psychologist. Wow, this episode has been so surprising. What do I do is what I want to know. But I suspect under 15 is probably too young. I agree. I mean, yeah. Really, any age is too young to make informed and sane decisions about your sexual behavior. Yeah. 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 And I do understand that, you know, we do have a large history of as soon as people went through puberty, they were like getting married and having babies. But they also lived to be like 30 and we weren't necessarily evolved enough to understand psychological health so this is one of those places for me that i just don't get behind foucault and i do think that the creation of social constructs to regulate behavior in certain situations is necessary well and i think this is where foucault gets a lot of criticism and a lot of blame really for Mm -hmm. this idea of moral relativism maybe i'm getting into trouble here but I genuinely do think that some values and some rights are universal. For example, if we're talking about sexual impropriety, rape is sexual impropriety. Absolutely. It is not treated universally across societies. It should be. Right. The prohibitions on homosexuality, Mm -hmm. uneven across societies, shouldn't be the case. And that goes for all cultures, including the ones that I belong to. 
because all cultures violate basic human rights in, in certain ways. And I think that that is something that Foucault gets to. He takes it to a level that I'm not comfortable with because now we get into then the conversation of what is a basic human right. Mm. Kind of the great conflict with the rise of Western democracy is the balance that needs to be struck between the rights of a people to self-govern and the rights of individuals mm. to liberty. And that's why we have the Bill of Rights mm -hmm. in the Constitution, right? Mm -hmm. And all democracies struggle with this to one degree or another. What the fuck am I talking about? Oh, we're so <laughs> lost now. We are so far from Foucault. But that's very fitting, right? <laughs> but it is. I mean, we're not far from Foucault because these are the threads of what he was talking about, right? Mm -hmm. We need to critically examine the social constructions, not to get rid of all of them, but to understand which ones are there as an advancement of a society and which ones are there as a form of control. My usage of Foucault specifically is you take something like the Bill of Rights and you have the Second Amendment, right? Just to completely blow that can of worms open with a shotgun. Mm -hmm. Look at how that gets interpreted. And it's only oh, like two God. sentences long. And this is where I say it, it, it is not necessarily a lot of really good sort of deep reads on really any kind of politics, to be honest with you, or any kind of political philosophy. The Cliff Notes version of Foucault is only going to get you so far. You got to stop learning about Foucault on TikTok. Oh, I can only imagine the things we're going to hear from Foucault enthusiasts and haters and experts and scholars, <laughs> because I'm... they are all going to have very different interpretations. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I'm willing to go down with the Foucault ship, but I could probably last this a pretty good argument. This is the hill we die on. This is not going to be the hill I die on, but this is I, I do have strong... Mount Foucault! Yes. Yeah, we a lot of people mount Foucault, Foucault, don't worry. This is going to be a very long episode. Foucault, NAMBLA member or not, I don't know. All I know is I don't agree with him about that at all. So, in 1980... Foucault moved to Berkeley, where he was a visiting professor at Cal. Of course, and he his did. ideas were met with. Of course, he did. Right? No, and I, I feel like right. visit uh, uh, <laughs> listeners should know I live six miles from Berkeley, <laughs> so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I'm a local. I'm a mm -hmm. local. I'm a lover and a hater of <laughs> all of things Cal. Bay Area right now. Like everyone and, who lives here. That's actually that's true. That's mm. that's fair. So, yeah, as a visiting professor at Cal, his ideas were met with critical acclaim, and he spent the next four years traveling around the United States, giving lectures to packed college auditoria. While in the United States, Foucault was known to frequent the gay scene in San Francisco, where he could be spotted in the city's bathhouses, especially those that specialized in sadomasochism. So, 1983, back in Paris... Foucault's friends became concerned about the consistent dry cough he had had for several months. Oh. Foucault insisted that it was just a cold or an infection, but shortly after he was hospitalized, he tested positive for HIV. When the disease first started to make the news, Foucault scoffed at it, calling it a, quote, dreamed-up disease. He was released from the hospital and went on to deliver what would be his final series of lectures at the Collège de France. On June 10th, 1984, 
Michel Foucault was admitted to the hospital with sepsis. He died June 25th, 1984. Oh, damn. That was fast. He had probably had it for many years before then, you would think, unless mm-hmm. it developed very Absolutely. Quickly. No, no. So another thing, you know, we laugh about what a promiscuous gentleman he was, but... Mm. We also talk about the social constructs that sort of led to that. Mm -hmm. And also, I think we mentioned the advent of penicillin. And Mm -hmm. without a fear of bacterial infections, without a fear of pregnancy, a thing that I don't know that a lot of younger people really grasp is that gay men were really, really set up to have a, a lot of unprotected sex with partners they didn't even know. Yeah. Yeah, the the AIDS uh, epidemic, especially in the early years, was such a perfect storm for the obliteration of that entire generation of gay men. But at that point, it was a death sentence. And you probably had passed it because of its latency period to numerous people. And yeah. it's really sad, too, when you think about, I mean, he was only like 51. The contributions that he made really within like a 15 years of his career sort of astounding initially after his death uh, there was some confusion on whether he had died of aids related disease with his family keeping mum about his cause of death two years later however Foucault's partner Daniel Defer confirmed Foucault's death was the result of aids and he started the nation's first HIV AIDS association called aids which it turns out is a play on words because AIDS in French means help. Hmm. Yeah. So I like that. Look at that. Um, yeah. It also means helps in English. Yeah. AIDS. Yeah. It also, you know. <laughs> yeah. It also. Um, I would like to point out, though, to the listener that it's spelled A I D E S. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Like a helper. That's at least a good thing to come from this. Boy, this is a real bummer episode. So, those who called Michel Foucault a friend said that he was known for his profound kindness and goodness and that his intelligence, quote, knew no bounds. Michel Foucault was a weird dude, but like so many people we have already learned about, we can see that he was a nuanced, multifaceted, messy human with a brilliant mind. He was tireless in his pursuit to uncover the truth about the manifestation of knowledge and power throughout human history. His ideas and theories have had a profound impact on how we look at race, sexuality, immigration, feminism, incarceration, and more. And for that, he's a pretty kick-ass queer. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. I can't believe we got through it all, honestly. That's a, that was a very, <laughs> very big topic to tackle. <laughs> and I, I was did it, skeptical and I coming did it, in. And I did it in a day and a half. <laughs> Tell me. Don't don't tell your students that. Well, now they know they have no excuse. It's true. Well, thank you, Larry. Thank you to Didier Erebon, David Halperin, David Macy, James Miller, Louis Althusser, and of course, Michel Foucault for their invaluable contributions to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to like rate and review us you can find us on apple podcasts spotify google podcasts deezer player fm 
you know, it's just a lot of stuff. If you go to kickassqueers.com, we're on all the things. There's a bunch of the links there. Yeah. You can also tip us now. Oh, yeah, that's right. You can buy us a cup of coffee. Yeah, we're on Buy Me Me a Coffee. And there's a link to that on the website. And I believe in a lot of the player embeds. I'll put a link in the show notes. Fantastic. You can you can help keep us in microphones and headphones and switchboards and hosting software. Yes, absolutely. If you would like to follow us on social media, really the only one we're keeping updated at this point is Kick-Ass Queercast on Instagram. Mm. Please join us next time when we will be discussing... The birth of rock and roll. It's going to be sort of a twofer. We're going to do Johnny Ray and Little Richard. Ah! Good Molly. Good good golly, Miss Molly. I'm sure someone did at some point. (laughs) 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 Like a gay 50s groupie, we are going to do Johnny Ray and Little Richard. God, beautiful. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to hear about the birth of rock and roll from those two swinging daddies. Mm -hmm. And until next time, remember... Act like no one in the Panopticon is watching you and continue to kick ass. Oh, and stay tuned for porn stories. One thing I don't think listeners know about me that you do know about me mm. is that life is a John Waters movie to me. So yeah. if there's a porn expo right next to us, I'm going to it. Yeah. On our way to like the Ferris wheel thing. Oh my God. So we feel kind of creepy standing in line for this porn expo <laughs> with all the with all the fans who are so excited to meet their favorite porn stars or whatever. We go in and it's mostly straight female performers at their booths. Some of them are selling Polaroids and autographs and things like that. Right. Which I thought the Polaroids were kind of a good idea. I'm like, oh, that's that's awesome. You get your own private picture of your favorite porn star. <laughs> that you can whack off to. That's great. Oh, I would frame it probably. You would. You would. And that's so good. So there's vendors pitching their products, right? So I saw a demonstration of... A demonstration? <laughs> it was a machine oh. that... Um, okay so you know those little compressed towelettes that restaurants will sometimes use wow i had no idea where that was going yes okay yeah i was like this is this is amazing i don't oh boy i can't wait to see where this is going okay so i guess those are really big in like sex now this company was showing me a machine that hydrates them and sanitizes them that you just like keep by your bed or whatever and i was like you know i could just pour hot water on the same little towelettes even that sort of seems like a pain in the ass and three like who is going to have their sex wipe machine sitting by the bed <laughs> and it's not a really small machine either it's <laughs> remember answering machines yeah yeah it was like a taller answering machine i'm just trying to figure out between the humidifier and Kara CPAP machine. Like, where, where am I going to put my sex towel rehydrator? Right. They're the latest thing. But, you know, oh, um, shit. Maud also sells them, I've noticed, and they don't seem to require a machine. You just add hot water and you're fine. Just, just add water. Eventually, we make it up to the little gay strip okay. on, on one end. Okay. 
And that is so different from the straight area because one, the guys want to be your best friend. Like there was this guy, um, trying to find his Polaroid. Yeah. I'm trying to find the pictures I took. <laughs> so I know their names. Oh my God. This, this guy, Morgan Thick. Not related it, like, to Alan Falcon or Robin. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> he sort of like pulls us over and people kept asking how or like why we were there, which was really kind of interesting. One guy actually guessed that we were there for Kylie. <laughs> you look like a Kylie kind of gay. <laughs> so like all the porn guys are all sort of like hanging out in this one area. Mm -hmm. And the one person I did recognize was Johnny Rapid. <laughs> Have you heard of him? No. No, I have not. He's a pretty big porn star. He was super sweet, too. You know, hugs, kisses, all that stuff. Mm. Not on the mouth, Rachel. Huh. Well. We're all respectable. Morgan Thick was very sweet. And then this guy, Joel Somebody. And I'm not saying that because I forget his last name. His porn last name is Somebody. George Somebody. Joel. Joel, Joel Somebody. Joel. Okay. Okay. I hope, Joel. I hope I'm remembering this correctly. <laughs> you remembered Somebody, so, but not Joel. He was super sweet, and he's, like, hanging out with us and befriending us. And at one point, he's like, let's go over to the men.com booth and be mean to the mean girls. But there was no one there, so we didn't do that. He might have been full of shit. He might have been Regina Georging us or something. I don't know. But, <laughs> but he, he was super nice, so <laughs> who knows? But the funniest thing to me is there was a little cocky boys area, and it was sort of the porn twinks, right? Mm -hmm. They're all sitting there. At this tiny little table, there's three of them. Each one is looking in a different direction. They're not speaking to each other. They're not looking at each other. They're not interacting with anyone else. They're just being cunty. There. Silently cunty. <laughs> <laughs> each one of them looks like they would rather be literally anywhere else on the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they were being twinks. And I have never understood the negative stereotypes about twinks. Really? Until that moment. Yeah. It seriously took you that long. I mean, no offense to Twinks, but oh my God, seriously. But you know why, Larry? That's your type. You find all that shit endearing. Well, it's not that I find their vibe endearing, but I do have a very different relationship with the Twinks that I have known personally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So aside from the Twinks, the gay area was fun, is what I'm saying. Basically, I would not go back to the Porn Expo, but I now I'm sort of even more interested in going to the awards. Just bring your assless chaps and bow tie.